Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Last month, WNPR hosted a screening of the PBS documentary, Understanding the Opioid Epidemic. Afterwards, we taped a panel discussion with three guests to respond to the film and to share their perspectives on the issue of treating substance abuse in our local communities. Our panelists included Sue Kruzek, a Guilford, Connecticut resident who lost her son, Nick, to an opioid overdose. Kelvin Young, a Middletown resident who's in recovery and now assists others as a certified recovery advisor at Aware Recovery Care, Inc. And Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health, also a member of the Connecticut Opioid Response Team. The PBS film Understanding the Opioid Epidemic focused partly on the fault of the medical community for the opioid crisis, from physicians overprescribing opioid drugs to pharmaceutical companies marketing and distributing incorrect information about the addictiveness of opioids to consumers. I asked Dr. Heimer to talk about the role of doctors and pharmaceutical companies and whether attitudes in the industries have changed. It certainly is changing, but I think we need to think in a more historical perspective, starting going back to, as the film points out, that in the, in the 80s and 90s, there was this recognition of pain as a medical problem that got in the way of people healing from a variety of acute or chronic problems, and that pain was also a problem that was not being properly dealt with in terminal illness. And it turned out that we had one kind of hammer to deal with all kinds of pain, and those were opioids. Uh, without the data to support the, benef- the benefits of opioids for treating chronic pain. We now have 30 years of, of medical knowledge that says opioids do not do well for treating chronic pain. But there's, a, there's even a more fundamental reason why opioids were used for treating chronic pain, and that is that other alternatives were just simply not affordable or available. You know, you have chronic back pain or some other kind of neuromuscular pain. The best advice is you know, rest for weeks. Well, doctor, I can't rest. I have to go to work. I have two weeks of medical leave. I can't take three months off. I can't take it. I won't even have my job when I go back. Okay, what about physical therapy? Well, every time you go, there's a copay. I can't afford the copay. I, I can't take the time. I need something so I can go back to work tomorrow. Well, what do, you, what do I have to send you back to work tomorrow is opioids. I can write your prescription now for 30 days, come back and see me in 30 days. That's why opioids started being prescribed for chronic pain. And they continue to be, to this day, somewhat problematically, although uh, the number of, uh, of prescriptions has decreased every year now since 2010, but the number of opioid overdose deaths have not. And the reason is what's replaced opioids Pharmaceutical opioids at known fixed safe doses is street drugs of unsafe doses. And so this supply-side approach to controlling the opioid epidemic has actually worsened the problem. You're talking about heroin? Heroin and other, other drugs that, that are 
actually replacing heroin in many places, uh, the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Sue has a very personal story related to the opioid epidemic in this country. So maybe you want to tell our, our audience a little bit about um, your connection and then your reaction to what you're hearing tonight. So um, I lost my son, Nick, four years ago um, to a heroin, heroin overdose. His addiction started his freshman year on his ice hockey team. He was the starting center at Daniel Hand High School and in the locker room, an upperclassman handed him a pill to help him relax. Mm. And apparently Nick must have enjoyed the feeling it gave him. Unbeknownst to us, um, he never skated a high school game sober. And ultimately when he was in college, uh, came to us uh, telling us that he needed to go to rehab we had to find out for what. Um, we had no idea. I had to Google at the time what an opiate was. And we had to put him on a plane. We had Anthem Blue Cross insurance. Back then, I hope this has changed, our insurance didn't cover detox in the state of Connecticut. So we had to put Nick Blindly on a plane to a rehab facility or detox first in Florida. And he went down there. And he did have a misdemeanor hanging over his head. So for about nine months, we'd have to fly Nick home every month to go to court to get postponed. And then eventually they just put him on probation, which because it was not a felony, it was only a misdemeanor. He could not leave the state of Connecticut or go back to his rehab uh, facility. And two months later, after Nick got an apartment and got a job and uh re-enrolled at Southern, we, we found him in his apartment, dead, he had overdosed. I'm sorry that you lost your son. This was in 2013? Yes, yes. 11 days before he should have been 21. Uh, now it's 2018, and you've been traveling the state with other parents uh, who have dealt with either uh, trying to get their, their children help or burying them because of their uh, addiction to substances. I mean, where are you in your process of grief? And, and in that process, when we talk about, again, how we ended up at this point, who are you angry at? Are you angry? The world. Um, I'm, I'm very angry, yes. Um, I'm angry at us uh, because we thought he would just kind of go away to rehab and he'd be fixed. Um, we were so uneducated as parents, as a family, my entire family, um, we truly believed he was going to be okay. Um, I'm angry at Purdue Pharma for flooding our streets with this pill that started my son's addiction and ended up taking his life. Um, and the doctors for writing senseless scripts for every broken bone, um, wisdom teeth that helped to flood our streets. And, you know, where a 15-year-old boy could think he was innocently taking something. Um, and I, I know that decision was Nick's too. And there was a time I was angry at Nick. I didn't understand the, the beast of this addiction. Um, I'd like to say I'm not angry at Nick anymore, um, just everybody else. <laughs> you helped uh, 
lawmakers draft uh, legislation and did turn into law uh, that would put a cap on uh, prescription of opioids for non-chronic pain for seven days. So you see some some strides to try to curb this problem in our community. Is it is it effective? Um, the seven-day cap. I'm hopeful that it will prevent some first-time users from becoming addicted. I'm very hopeful for that. I'm hopeful um, that it's helping uh, alleviate all the excess prescriptions and pills that have been flooding our state and our country from even being out there. Um, yes, I, I'm proud of those two components to it. Kelvin Young is sitting next to you. Uh, you also have a personal connection uh, to this discussion tonight. Uh, tell us about uh, your recovery and what your thoughts are and how communities, not only here in Connecticut, but nationwide, are starting to try to address this problem. Absolutely. Um, you know, as of being a, a certified recovery coach or certified recovery advisor and sound practitioner, I'm a person. Uh, that's in recovery from alcohol and other drugs, including cocaine, heroin, and other opiates. You know, and for me, after many years of battling with different types of emotional distresses like like depression, anxiety, I reached out for something for outside of myself to feel better. And I, I reached out to the cocaine, I reached out to the heroin, I reached out to the alcohol and to the marijuana and the oxycotton uh, to make me feel better. And those experiences led me to incarceration. And while incarcerated, I learned about the, the transformative powers of, of yoga, meditation, and creative expressive arts like poetry and journaling, different holistic practices that I believe that needs to be um, billable and ensured for people to um, utilize going through these um, addictive experiences. And by utilizing these different practices while incarcerated, I was able to find a sense of calmness and inner peace being in a very hostile and restrictive environment such as prison. But most importantly, I was able to get to the root causes of my addiction. And from my experience, I learned that the, the unresolved emotional distress and pain, the unhealed trauma, the unmet needs was at the root of my addiction. So therefore, I was reaching for something outside of myself to find relief from those different types of emotional pain. And I used a physical painkiller like Oxycontin, like heroin, to deal with emotional pain. And it worked. Boy, did it work. It worked for a while until it didn't work. And I got caught up in that very vicious cycle of addiction. But by going within, and to me, that's where healing truly begins. We have an opportunity to go inside of ourselves. And I was able to see all those different types of emotional stresses that I was experiencing in my life for many, many years. And I like to use the analogy is, you know, we have a, a weed uh, growing in our, in our yard. And, you know, we could get the lawnmower out and we could cut, you know, cut the weed and, you know, we don't see the weed in, in the lawn for a while, you know, a day or, or maybe seven days. But eventually that weed will grow back. So if I go in my yard and, and pull out the roots of that weed, chances are really great that that weed is not going to grow back. So therefore, for me, I had to get to the root causes of my emotional distress, the root cause of my addiction. And I learned that experience. And, you know, recovery is a lifelong journey. It's a, it's a process towards living better and being healthier. But the key for me was, was taking personal responsibility for my health and well-being. But one of the things that what the film did touch upon was um, the part that Big Pharma played 
um, in this epidemic that we're experiencing right now. And I've been saying this for a little while now, but it's time for us to hold Big Pharma accountable for the part that they played in this epidemic. For, you know, for far too long, they falsified information, put out very aggressive propaganda, you know, with the marketing campaigns, and pretty much straight up lied to us and, and saying how non-addictive that these drugs were. And they made billions of dollars, billions of dollars every year. And with that, those billions of dollars, they have the influence so to speak, to really hire lobbyists to influence different policies on a government level. Um, they have finances to influence politicians. They have, you know, to, to influence doctors, to influence the medical communities. And even right now, influence the recovery community. They have a lot of money to really influence a lot of uh, decision making. So therefore, it's important that we hold them accountable for the part that they played, uh, played in. It's time to, to pay out. Here in Connecticut, I know the city of New Haven is one of more than a dozen municipalities that are suing these pharmaceutical companies, including Purdue Pharma, which, if you don't know, is based in Stamford, Connecticut. So uh, there are more uh, actions to try to hold people accountable. But at the same time, no money in the world brings back uh, the lives Absolutely. of people that have died. Uh, Absolutely. Nick, Sue's son. Uh, I think we're on track. I think we're waiting for the latest numbers from the Connecticut Medical Examiner for 2017 on mm -hmm. track to surpass more than 1,000 overdose deaths here in uh, Connecticut. Uh, but you also brought up a good point. I wanted to get Robert Heimer's perspective. Kelvin brought up a good point about how, um, for him, he, he figured it out to try to find the root cause of why he was looking for substances to help him cope. When we talk about this problem, we focus on who's prescribing and who's producing these pills. But what about the, the state of our mental health support network and the fact that if people are suffering, that they can get help before they go to that substance to help them cope? Well, I think Kelvin was absolutely correct when he said that many people start the road to uh, addiction because they're self-medicating for some other mental health problem that's not being addressed. And of course, we have great stigma around mental health still and around addiction, which is another mental health problem, all of which make seeking treatment on the part of individuals very difficult. We don't go to the doctor because we have high blood pressure or diabetes and feel like it's our personal failure. We don't go to the doctors because we have cancer because, and feel like it's our failing. And until we broaden our conceptions about mental health and recognize that these are treatable conditions, these are manageable conditions, then we can begin to deal with individual problems before they become self-medicated with drugs like opioids. That's Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health and member of the Connecticut Opioid Response Team. He's one of three panelists we spoke to at a discussion recently at Gateway Community College in New Haven. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll hear from him and our guests, Sue Kruzek of Guilford and Kelvin Young of Middletown. We'll ask each of them what they believe are the best strategies for treating people addicted to opioids. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're continuing to have conversations about how the opioid epidemic has affected communities across our state. We've addressed the crisis from a number of angles. Is there a perspective we're missing? 
We'd like to hear from you. Email where we live at WMPR.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today we're listening to a recent panel discussion we hosted at Gateway Community College in New Haven. Three panelists joined us to provide their perspectives on how to combat substance abuse in local communities. Our guests were Calvin Young, a Middletown, Connecticut man in recovery, who now works with others who have substance abuse issues, Sue Kruzek, a Guilford, Connecticut mother who lost her son Nick to an opioid overdose, and Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health. I asked Dr. Heimer about his role with the state opioid response team. Two years ago, the the governor asked four of us at at Yale to come up with a, a plan. A pain management physician, uh, the emergency department, uh, general medical practitioners who, who use uh, medication-assisted treatment, mostly buprenorphine, for dealing with opioid use disorder, and, and me, I'm a, a, an epidemiologist who's been studying the drug epidemic in Connecticut since 1990. Mm-hmm. And we came up with a six-point plan that basically says this is what we need to do. This is evidence-based. We know we need to do these things. We need to expand medication-based treatment. We need to uh, develop better communication among the state agencies. We need to uh, get more naloxone, Narcan out in the streets to prevent overdose deaths from happening by treating people who are experiencing overdose before that overdose becomes a death. And we need to have ways to better control opioid prescribing to keep it from being overused for conditions where it's inappropriate, like treating chronic neuromuscular pain or or autoimmune disease pain, where these drugs simply don't work. If you're in a car accident, if you have surgery, these drugs help you uh, recover. Um, They don't work for treating chronic pain. And and if any of you are prescribed an opioid for chronic pain, by all means say no, give me something else. Mm. I also have to say we have to change the whole perception of what's appropriate treatment for opioid use disorder. The proper treatment, we have now have 100 years of experience with abstinence-based treatment, it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. You don't recover from addiction. You recover from the flu. You recover from a broken arm. You have to encourage people to seek continued treatment for opioid use disorder. There's just no way around it. We, and we have a 50 now, almost 60 year history of treating uh, opioid addiction with medications. Yes, they're opioids, but they work very differently from short acting opioids like heroin or oxycodone. And they maintain people in a state of normal life. Um, I've I've never become uh, an opioid addict, but I've talked to a lot of them, and almost all of them say, I don't take my opioids uh, to get high anymore. I take them to feel normal. Mm -hmm. And the point of these maintenance drugs is they allow people to feel normal. Instead of waking up in the morning, feeling with entering withdrawal, they're in a state of, I can now go to work. I can now, you know, make breakfast for my kids. I can now you know, engage with my family again, and these drugs work. They're effective when they're properly treated in proper uh, circumstances, 80 to 85 percent of the time, whereas whereas recovery fails 90 to 95 percent of the time within a year. And we have a 100-year history of data on that, so I'm not even going to argue that. You're, you're talking about Suboxone? I'm talking about, no, the big M that no one in the room has been talked about, which is the best, which is the better drug than Suboxone. 
But we hear often about Suboxone. Why is that? Because people can make lots of money on it. That's right. It's another pharmaceutical drug that costs massive amounts of money. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And even more money can be made trying to sell uh, opioid antagonist drug that blocks the effects of, of opioids, Vivitrol, an injectable, uh, an implantable uh, opioid antagonist, for which there is almost no evidence that it works. Mm. Calvin, I wanted to get your perspective. Uh, Robert Heimer says that abstinence doesn't work, that people do need medicated assistant treatment. I don't want to be that simplistic. It works for some people, but it's a small percent. Mm -hmm. And I, as an epidemiologist, I think in in, in numbers, I, you know, the joke about an epidemiologist is, I can't help you unless there are 10 or more of you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Calvin, what, do you, what is your reaction to what Robert's saying? I know abstinence works, works for me, and I know it works for, for a lot of people. And um, to be honest, to be very um, authentic in, in my words and speaking over here, I have, I have a lot of reservations about uh, medication-assistant treatment. I really do, you know, and at the same time, I, I look at how the pharmaceutical companies, how they pretty much, you know, they got a part in playing this, this epidemic, and now we're looking at the, the big pharma to come up with a solution, so to speak, um, with their medication-assistant treatment. So therefore, they're making money from both sides of the, of the of ends here and laughing all the way to the bank while our loved ones are dying. Our family members are dying. Suboxone still a, a narcotic, you know. And um, but at the same time, being in the trenches, being working um, with people that are having these different experiences, I understand that there's many pathways uh, to recovery. And and abstinence works works for me. And and but therefore, as a recovery coach, as a connecting with the the individuals that suffering from addiction, it's important for them to make an informed decision about the choices they make in their lives. And if they choose to, to use any type of medication-assistant treatment, um, have a plan to wean off. I have friends that's, that's on um, MATs that are afraid um, to get off. And it's important why you, you know, want to call it stabilized with these medication-assistant treatment. Um, it's important to do the inner work. We want to do for, to find that freedom uh, from that addiction. And another thing I want to touch upon is, as a community, we need to reframe or maybe change the perception of how we look at people uh, experiencing addiction and the labels and the language that we use of people that have these addictive experiences, saying the word addict or alcoholic. You know, I, I tend to say the addicted person or the person that experiencing um, an addiction, you know, because behind the so-called addict, behind the so-called addictive behavior is a human being that experienced so much type of different emotional, even physical pain and distress. Stigma is, is something that is a big barrier that for people to not want to receive support in the first place. So if we change the language that we describe people that have these experiences and educate people on addiction all throughout the community, I think is, is so, important. so important. You're talking about stigma. I mentioned Sue has traveled the state, has talked with families, communities. You've talked at schools. How do people perceive someone who has a substance abuse problem? And is there blame that is pointed towards the family? So, so it depends. Um, in my, my little world, people know I'm a safe place to come and share their secrets or their child's secrets. And people aren't afraid to talk about it with me. And they're certainly not going to make me feel bad 
about losing a child to addiction. But then when I step back and I kind of leave my own little bubble and I read comments on a newspaper article, and th th there's a lot of it thinning the herd or, you know, it was their choice, uh, you know, th that kind of thing. And that's ugly. Because there is this belief by some that, well, why can't the person just stop abusing the I drug? the same thing. Robert Heimer, tell us what's happening to the brain when someone becomes addicted to something like heroin. Heroin acts as a, as a driver of the, the pleasure reward system of the brain. It's the same part of the brain that's, that's stimulated by food or sex. But what happens with drugs of addiction is that they create a, a system in which that part of the brain is overly reinforced, not only when the drugs are administered, but even in the contemplation of taking the drugs. Mm. So you can see release of the, the, the transmitter in this part of the brain that, that says, I'm being rewarded, I am entering a euphoric state even before the drug enters somebody's mm. vein. And because of that pressure and because of that memory that's seated in the brain, that does not go away. I mean, this, is a, this is a memory <laughs> that people reinforce three and four times a day when they inject drugs, when they take their, their pharmaceutical uh, opioids uh, to, because they are, have developed opioid use disorder. That's why recovery is really hard. That's why people relapse all the time. That's why medications are important, and that's even why I don't see the need if you're on a, 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 a long-acting drug like methadone or buprenorphine that's working. I see no need to wean. You would never say, okay, someone's got diabetes. We treat them with insulin. We're going to wean them off insulin. People, the, 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 you know, the pancreas doesn't go back to normal. I'm going to wean somebody off their antihypertensive drugs. Uh, their blood pressure will shoot right back up. And that's also true with opioids at least for many years. And if people are going to wean themselves off of, their, off, off of their medications, then they'd better do it with doctor supervision because if they, if they relapse, they're gonna go out and use a, a street drug of unknown potency and they're gonna put them at great risk of opioid overdose. And they're gonna do it and they're gonna feel guilty about it and no one's gonna know about it and no one's gonna be around with naloxone to reverse their overdose. So this has to be done with care and with, and with the help of, of properly trained doctors. I wanted to shift a little and to talk about some of the options for families who are trying to, to connect their loved one to some type of treatment program. We hear so often when we talk about um, addiction on where we live that there aren't enough beds to help people who are ready for rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So when your son reached out to you for help, and you had to send him to Florida, and you had to pay for that yourself. Not all families have those resources. Um, well, what, what you want to do for your child, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, I mean, that's ridiculous to have to put your kid blindly on a plane or parent, you know, whoever, um, to go out of state to some facility you have never seen, know nothing about, and off they go. Um, I, I hope that's changed, but, but yeah, that's ridiculous, but this is <laughs> Kelvin. <laughs> Kelvin, what options do families have? What does insurance pay for? That's and what, and then to follow up with Robert, what is proven to help people in their path to recovery? 
in terms of how many days they need uh, in a residential treatment facility if they can get a bed. Yeah, so. and that's, that's one of the big issues that we, we're dealing with, and especially with the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services dealing with a lot of cuts. You know, the, our bed's not really really available, and it's a, it's a big challenge for a lot of a lot of family members. And um, But one thing I can say about, you know, aware recovery care, you know, we're an in-home addiction treatment program. So we're a, a one-year program. People come out of detox or even come out of a 30-day program. You know, people do very well once they get access or get a bed in a drug treatment program. But when they go back to the communities, that's that's where they deal with a lot of the stressors, a lot of the pressure, and a lot of the issues they, they may be dealing with. And we have a whole team of people that's there to support them on their healing journey of recovery, from a psychiatrist to a therapist to a licensed marriage and family counselor. Whereas, you know, this is a family um, affair. You know what I mean? We, we, need, we need to deal with the family dynamics as well, too. And most importantly, it's the, it's the recovery coaches, the people with lived experience that are really able to listen to uh, the direction they want to go with their recovery and support them on a healing journey. And how cost-effective it is, whereas the program at Aware Recovery Care um, for the whole year program is the same amount as a one-month uh, inpatient treatment program. And a lot of insurance companies are looking at that and saying, um, that's something to really consider. And our success rate is six times higher than uh, the natural average because I believe it's, it's, it's really important to they get that support in the community. In CCAR, they have also recovery coaches that's in the in emergency departments, you know, and really um, catching them while they have that window of opportunity to give them the support they need if they choose to, whether they want to go to a, some type of program or, or whatever the case may be. Robert, through your work, uh, especially with the Connecticut Opioid Response Team, what are effective ways uh, to help people if they can't get into that 30-day program or some of the programs Kelvin talking about uh, good fit? I'm going to say two things right now that are very controversial. We do not need more beds. We need more meds. And I'm, and I'm going to go further in saying that detox is unethical medical treatment. If you put people through detox and you send them back out without proper care, what happens is they have reduced tolerance to drugs. They tend, in that case, to have higher rates of overdose. When people come out of 30-day treatment programs, especially if they leave ahead of the end of those 30 days, they have higher rates of opioid overdose. We don't need that kind of treatment. It doesn't work for most people for enough people that it's continuing to contribute to our opioid overdose death epidemic. We need to get people onto, onto medications that are, have been proven effective and whose, whose stigmatization continues to hamper their proper implementation. The state of Connecticut uh, has restricted the expansion of methadone programs in Waterbury, Torrington, and New Haven by putting a moratorium on new Medicaid slots for these drugs, that is an incredible, uh, unethical thing to do. It's put people at risk. It's prevented people from going to programs in their communities where they don't have to travel great distances to get the care they need uh, with services that include the kind of mental health and other wraparound services that, uh, that inpatient recovery programs can't give. They can provide people with treatment for the 
medical problems like their hepatitis C that they've gotten from injecting drug use with social services, those kind of programs have the greatest rate of being effective. And the programs in Bridgeport and New Haven that I know, you can get into treatment in 90 minutes. You don't have to wait days for a bed. You can get treatment today. Go in, get an intake, uh, we'll get you on a dose of medication uh, in 90 minutes that will relieve your, you know, your craving and get you off of, the, uh, of illegal drugs. And remember, the definition of addiction is not dependence on opioids. It's continued use of opioids despite the negative consequences. If those drugs are being prescribed under medical supervision, you've, uh, you know, you've gotten rid of the negative consequences and you've provided positive consequences. So under those circumstances, when people are being treated with buprenorphine and methadone, they are not addicted. They're being maintained, they're being properly treated for a disease that has perhaps irreparably changed their brain and we're having opiates on board is the normal situation. So can that get started after an overdose when somebody's in the hospital instead of just released? Absolutely. The emergency department at Yale has pioneered a program that's now expanding to other Yale-affiliated hospitals in the state, where if you come in with an overdose or even a diagnosis of opioid use disorder, they will try to get you a dose of buprenorphine right there and connect you with a community provider who can prescribe buprenorphine so that you never have to go into withdrawal. And, and, and that is the safest and most effective way to deal, to deal with opioid use disorder. And yes, it means you're going to be on a drug the rest of your life. I have, I have a family history of, of heart disease. I am on statins for the rest of my life. Thank goodness for medications. Well, we don't have to be, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. As a human being, you know, we're more than just our physical body. There's a mental, there's emotional, and there's a spiritual aspects to us as, as well, too. And, you know, by saying that I, I need to be on a drug for the rest of my life, which I've been in recovery for eight years, abstinence, and... Um, I know I'm on a, I'm on a healing journey. You know, it's a healing journey that I'm doing. And, you know, it, it just it seems to me that a drug dealer now is not on the streets no more. They have white coats. You know, they have fancy offices. And, and the cartels, um, and it's, it's not in Mexico, it's not in Colombia, it's not in Afghanistan. They're right here in Connecticut called Purdue Pharma. They, <laughs> they're influencing so many people, so many different uh, communities saying that we need their drugs for the rest of their life. We can heal. Our bodies have a natural ability to heal itself under the right conditions, under the right conditions. But, you know, when we have doctors telling us that we're going to need a drug for the rest of our life, you know, statin is maybe a lifestyle change will get you off of those particular drugs. Maybe eating certain foods where it's foods have a direct, <laughs> direct connections to different um, diseases. So a lot of these chronic um, diseases can really be changed by, by, by a lifestyle. And it just really learning how to, to look at it as, as healing, um, not necessarily as, as I need a drug for the rest of my life. That's like, that's, wow, that's, that's putting myself in a box if I, if I believe that. Kelvin is right. Kelvin is right that for some, some people can change their lives, the vast majority do not. The percentage of people who can control their cholesterol through diet and exercise is tiny. The same is true for addiction. The, Percentage of people who can control their use purely by force of will through abstinence is tiny. And let's not forget that. The people who, who promote recovery are in the majority of people. 
people who, who are still using drugs every day because recovery and abstinence doesn't work for them are not up here on this stage. There's 23 million people in long-term recovery today. I'm so proud to be one of them. I know Mario is one of them. You're, I know Carol is one of them. I know Anna is one of them. There's other people in here as well, too. Faith is one of them. So I'm just proud to be in recovery. That's Kelvin Young, a certified recovery advisor at Aware Recovery Care Incorporated, speaking to Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health. Both men were on a panel WNPR hosted, along with Sue Kruzek, a Guilford, Connecticut mother who lost her son Nick to an opioid overdose. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we hear from audience members who attended the discussion. Many of them have been directly affected by substance abuse. We'll hear what steps they'd like to see local communities take to stem the opioid epidemic. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're listening back to a panel discussion we hosted about how local communities should address the opioid crisis in Connecticut. The discussion was held at Gateway Community College in New Haven. Our guests on the panel were Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health, also a member of the Connecticut Opioid Response Team. Kelvin Young, a certified recovery advisor at Aware Recovery Care Incorporated, and Sue Kruzek, a Guilford, Connecticut resident and mother of a son who died from an opioid overdose. I asked audience members to respond to what the panelists had shared and to talk about their personal experiences with substance abuse. Hi, everybody. My name is Carol Cruz. I'm a person of long-term recovery since 1994, and I have a lot of my colleagues here that uh, we're in the trenches every day. I work in the field as a recovery coach in a local um, detox center and outpatient program serving uh, clients with methadone, medication assistance treatment, Suboxone. I came through the ranks of a 12-step program. Abstinence was the only pathway that I knew of. I've had to shift my thinking and be more open and broaden my mind that, yes, recovery has a pathway of health, and recovery has a pathway of uh, medication assistance treatment. I feel that, you know, we really need to look at the whole person holistically, and that includes the family, that includes treating the family, treating the individual, having these wraparound services. Most of the clients that I work with, I, the first thing I ask them is, when's the last time you had a physical? Something as simple as that that we take advantage of, we, you know, we, we just don't think about. So, um, you know, I, 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 this is very passionate to all of us. And um, we're not going to get it done in one day. Mm. But we really need to start working with each other and stop blaming Big Pharma and everybody else and just start coming together. We all have great ideas. We're strong people. I didn't think that what I would be doing today 23 years ago. I really didn't. I thought I was dead, you know. But the bottom line is that we have a lot of information, but we need to sit down and just not just watch films, not just check off the box, but really get our hands dirty. Thank you. Uh, who else? Hey, I'm Mario. Do you know I'm a person? And I'm in recovery as well. There's like a few things I just think that burn me up all the time. It's the same problems. Um, there's, there's no one right way. You know, I'm different than my friend Brandon right here. There's no one right way. We're all different. So my recovery looks different than someone else's. My treatment plan should look different. Uh, do I believe in medicated assistance For certain people, yes. My, my question to people that, you know, have you ever been on Suboxone or Methadone? I have. 
That's a nasty mother effer. Mm. Try to get off that. Try to see, and, and, and just try it. And it doesn't stop anyway, because I've been on uh, Suboxone and been able to use crack cocaine, alcohol. You can do everything else. It's not the answer for me, I'm saying. I don't know about everyone else, but for me. And um, the recovery is the most important thing in my life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mario. <laughs> It's a couple more questions. Hello, uh, my name is Jamal Kimber. I have a comment question. Um, Dr. Hyman, I don't know if you remember, we worked together back in the 90s to bring harm reduction here to the state. And it's great to hear that, you know, um, the work that we did back then, you know, has manifested because it took you nine months to get a methadone program. So to hear that you can come in in one day and get doses is, is a great accomplishment in the system. And I think I have to push back, Calvin. I just have to congratulate you the way that you uh, represent the recovery community. You know, one of the questions I got to you, Bob, is why aren't any consumers on that, that governance panel? I think that the people that are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Mm. And with the tremendous amount of respect that I have for you and the work that you've done over the years, I mean, it's taken us this long to get this far, right? There's still a lot of work out there to be done. You know, the resources aren't there, and it's not so much as, you know, the beds and the facilities, but it's, you know, equipping the ground soldiers, you know, I heard somebody say, the people that are right there in the trenches mm -hmm. and, and making uh, treatment accessible. You know, ATR came about because of advocacy, CCAR, and a lot of programs. The access to treatment came about through, you know, the men and women that testified at the General Assembly, you know, at the legislator, you know, the encouragement about this is, you know, <laughs> a disease, you know, and stop incarcerating people, and, and, and it fell on deaf ears for years. I guess the last thing that I wanted to leave out there is that, I agree wholeheartedly with Calvin because I'm somebody that survived jails, institutions, and death, right, and then was abstinent. And then I got in a car accident and, and wound up on, on mild pain meds, Vicodin, and then lost everything, you know, turned into full-blown addiction after being clean for 15 years. Lost two houses, two cars, you know, had a clean record, I got education. You know, it just turned my life upside down. And so I, I had an op option this time you know, to go on to methadone maintenance. But I chose uh, an abstinent model because I do believe that the body and the brain has the ability to heal itself. It's how we put together treatment. You know, the medication can stop you from using for a time, but you need the skills, you know, to deal with the, the cravings and the triggers and begin, begin to cope with life and a lot of the emotional pain that was never addressed in the beginning. So I wanted to throw that out there. I'll take uh, one more question. Thank you. Um, I'm a mom. Um, my son overdosed on uh, February 14th of 2016. He would have been the 918th um, death of that year had he not survived. He was six days in a coma, 12 days in the hospital, and we're very thankful that he's in recovery. And one thing I'm really glad to hear in the room is people talking about family, so thank you for bringing that up. And I also want to say that, um, just to back up what he just said, that when you talk so frankly about this stuff, you're robbing people of their hope in some ways, too, because I don't get a choice on what my son decides to do with his recovery. That's his choice at this point. So just keep that in mind as you, as you talk so frankly about these things. It's really better to have an open dialogue for some of us because we really are just holding on to whatever we can. I wanted to tell you just briefly that um, right after my son overdosed, um, he went into a family program, and I've been since trying to advocate for family programming here in New Haven because I think that's a big part of what they come home to. Um, along with that, I want to talk about the fact that after that I was diagnosed with cancer, I was in Nebraska and out of town, and somebody offered me pain medications over and over again. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't know that my son could say no as many times as I had to in that situation, and I called her out on it. 
There's no open um, software, as I understand it, that helps doctors to see the background of the patient that's in front of them. And even just this week, dealing with my own health situation, I'm dealing with doctors who are in and out of different softwares that even here in town, I was out of town when I was diagnosed, I could understand <laughs> that they didn't have my background then. But right here in town, I have people that have no idea what my background is, have no idea if I'm in recovery or not, have no idea if I'm on methadone or not. When are we going to open up the doors of communication for medicine so that we can be helped and served and not undermined in our own good recovery? Thank you. Does anyone want to respond to her comments, Robert? Yeah, we do have a huge problem in this country because we don't have a comprehensive system of, of electronic medical record reporting. There are far more deaths in this country every year from misprescribed medications that are not opioids mm. uh, that occur because of that. Many Americans have this thing about privacy and therefore oppose the idea of, of having you know, electronic medical records that doctors can see. And, and so the growth of those things have been, has been very, very slow. The state does have a prescription monitoring system that doctors are supposed to log into for scheduled medications, and that includes opioids, uh, benzodiazepines, sedatives of other kinds, uh, and doctors are supposed to check those things to see what's being prescribed to prevent duplicate prescribing and to look for interactions and to try to control high-dose opioid prescribing in combination with, with, uh, with benzodiazepines that contributes to the overdose death problem. So we're working on, that's one of the things of the Connecticut Opioid Response Plan, is to make sure that doctors know about this and use the system uh, and, and are properly trained to use it so that uh, they treat their patients, at least when it comes to the prescribing of opioids, in a more rational and evidence-based way. So I'm hoping that that takes off. This, this, this program has only been in the state for uh, seven years now. Its use is growing. But the problem is, as you point out, it's only Connecticut. So I, we could not go and see that you might have been prescribed that somewhere out of state. But we are a country of 50 states, and how we're going to get beyond that is, is very complicated. Kelvin and Sue, I wanted to ask you before we wrap some thoughts on where we should go from here. We shouldn't end this conversation tonight. What do you want people to do when they go back into their communities? I think um, just understanding the, the CSI model, which stands for Community Systems and Individuals, to really um, bring that all together. So community aspects of it is we all need to come back together and really support one another and really educate and take away the misconceptions that people have with addictions. Um, so coming together, having these community conversations, um, having discussions on, on, on working on healthy solutions to support people that's, that are experiencing addictions. And we got to look at the systems that, that's in place here. One of the things I learned in recovery is, you know, the definition of insanity is doing a thing over and over again, expecting different results. You know, some of the things in these systems are not working. So we need to scrap a lot of this stuff and, and come back to the table and, and change some of these policies. And it's so important to have people um, at the table 
nothing, nothing about us without us in the recovery community. So therefore, we need people that have lived experience to be at the table and, and talk about how they navigate their experiences and just really talking about how to navigate the system to and to create policies in place that really help us to sustain um, recovery and individuals and really empowering people to take personal responsibility uh, for their health and well-being and having that, that community support um, to really um, support um, people that experience an addiction um, in the community. There's organizations like CCAR, organizations like Facing Addiction that you can reach out to and they have uh, a vast amount of information and resources that that you can um, you can look at and, and really connect yourself to. So I think um, if somebody's in the emergency room, treatment needs to be in, in place and started before they're released, whether it's going to detox, um, that's all I know. Um, and make, making sure that they're not hitting the streets, running to their first, um, you know, the closest drug dealer, because that is what a lot of them do after they've been brought back. Um, you know, and I, I, I keep saying if I was talked off a ledge and I got up, they wouldn't say goodbye to have a good day. And that's what I see happening in the ERs with um, our addicts that are being brought back. So I'd like to see that one changed. And um, yeah, we're, we're all in this together. They say it takes a village. We're everybody's village. And, um, you know, thank you for everybody that came out um, and just keep talking about it. I, I think we're all we're all here because we're talking about it. Thanks to Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health, a member of the Connecticut Opioid Response Team, Calvin Young, a certified recovery advisor at Aware Recovery Care Incorporated, and Sue Kruzek, a Guilford, Connecticut resident. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Special thanks to Beth Messina, Nancy Bauer, Jane Marino, Carol Pompano, Gateway's EdTech team, and Blue Plate Kitchen. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.